Thank you very much, and Daniel, thank you very much, Alex, thank you very much for organizing this um, talk. I'm very excited to be here, and I'm sure you'll be kind enough to forgive if I, uh, at any time, it shows that uh, I'm suffering from severe jet lag and lack of sleep. And I'm also very excited uh, because this is the first time I'm going to be speaking about my research, doctoral research project after it has been finished. Uh, and, and until now, I've been presenting bits and pieces and also always thinking, well, I don't know when this is going to end. Now it's sort of, it has been uh, finalized. It's been submitted, I have my Viva, so I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm happy to return to it now. And also, for the first time, I think, I'm going to be speaking about the whole project, which will be a little bit daunting. Uh, and I, I, I'll try to leave as much time as possible for a Q&A because I would very much like to hear your thoughts or, or comments about my work. And so I think I should start with what, how I started this project or what, what brought me to it. As Daniel said, I've been working uh, in sort of the practice of personal justice for quite a while. And then I started thinking more about transitional justice as a field, discipline, or discourse, however you want to call it. Um, and at least since I um, um, completed my master's in international studies, where I focused on transitional justice. And, 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 my, and my first thought was, well, I think that as many people, other people have uh, thought the same is, what is transitional justice? What, what, what do we think when we talk about transitional justice? What are the boundaries of transitional justice? And what, uh, do we, what do we refer as transitional justice? And finally, what is inside and what is outside transitional justice? But the first step, step to look into that, I found, was to look into the history of transitional justice and how these things came about. And then I discovered that there wasn't that much written on, on this topic. There were a few uh, books uh, and ar articles, like rather not, not, not a single book completely devoted to the history of transitional justice. Um, but uh, what there was had been very powerful in the sense that it had been repeated by every single scholar uh, who has written about this issue. So if you open most articles or book about transitional justice and they'll have, as it's normal, one or two paragraphs about the history of transitional justice, how this started, how it developed. And they are all strikingly similar. And they, all, they, and they all refer to the same footnotes and the same sources. So in a way, I, I felt like, well, why is it that this has been so popular and powerful? And, and, and why there is this dominant narrative? And I thought that uh, what I thought was going to be the beginning of my doctoral research ended up engulfing the whole thing as it has happened to many uh, PhD student before, but what I ended up doing was sort of scratching this dominant narrative to see what was underneath. So, for many of you who will probably know this dominant narrative because it, it is in all these um, articles I mentioned before, in these few paragraphs. Transitional justice started in Nuremberg. During the Cold War, not much happened because of the ideological stalemate. Then, in the 1980s and 1990s, there were some transitions to democracy in Latin America. Uh, this afterwards, once uh, the Berlin Wall fell, 
there were more transitions in the former communist bloc. Uh, then there were these ad hoc tribunals created by the U.S. Security Council and this sort of reinvigorated international criminal law. And finally, we had the South African transition, which create, established this landmark uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which sort of uh, helped to establish you know, justice as a sort of separate entity. So this is sort of the dominant mark that you can find in any article or book that deals with traditional justice. So this is what I thought to problematize. And um, the argument of, of, of my research is basically that the emergence of a specific discourse of traditional justice with certain characteristics frame how the history of traditional justice was presented and which practices ultimately are considered relevant and which ones are excluded. Um, so this is the sort of the, the, the main thrust of, of, of my argument. And to do, in order to do that, I focus first on what is traditional justice today. I took out traditional justice discourse uh, as a shorthand for like everything that is written about traditional justice in the sense of uh, articles, books, uh, but also uh, journalistic, journalistic pieces, uh, documents by NGOs, by international organizations, internal tribunals. Uh, so that's everything that has to do with general justice, that huge collection of, of statements as well I take as the, sta the starting point. And um, so my first step is finding what I, I, I tentatively find are the sort of dominant characteristics of transitional justice. And again, this is nothing new. Um, many, many scholars before have sort of pointed out that there's a comparative element in transitional justice in comparing different transitions. There is a technical discourse and it's getting increasingly more technical. There's multidisciplinary, you know, there's, we're here at the social science building, we could be at the, at the law faculty, we could be at the history faculty, so it is multidisciplinary. But, but yet, there's a strong legalistic element to it, uh, and trials are still the sort of preferred option or the most, uh, the sort of the optimal, the optimal traditional justice response. <coughs> All these sort of technical apparatus, in a way, effectively uh, curtails the, the political discussions that uh, normally surround or should surround uh, discussions on uh, transitional justice and how to respond to massive human rights violations. Transitional justice is also theological <coughs> in the sense that, teleological, no, sorry, not theological. Uh, I, I'm not that passionate about transitional justice in that it's like religious. But it's dr driven to certain goals. Every sort of intervention is meant to achieve a set of goals uh, justice, truth, reconciliation, peace, you name it. It's, uh, uh, regardless of, of, of what different goals, regardless of whether they are contradictory or not, <coughs> everybody agrees that uh, these, these interventions should serve a purpose. And the number four is that it's a liberal discourse in which civil and political rights are emphasized and uh, violations of um, economic social and cultural rights are downplayed. Uh, liberal democracy is considered the best outcome of the transition that should be fostered. And capitalism, although it's not directly uh, sort of 
emphasizing the same ways as liberal democracy. In practice, uh, most traditional justice intervention uh, take place in societies that at least after the transition have some sort of capital, capitalist regime. So this is, this is all sort of englobed in the liberal aspect. Multi-level traditional justice uh, currently operates. We have international courts, we have regional um, uh, human rights systems, we have national institutions and also sort of local community-based initiatives and they're also like, they all fall within the traditional justice umbrella and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. And finally, all these um, interventions and practices and strategies are also state-centric. Although, as I just said, a sort of community-based and sort of more uh, alternative uh, and less state-centric approaches are, are being explored now, uh, this hasn't diminished the strong state-centric drive that has characterized traditional justice until today. So basically, these are these characteristics that, as I said, many people have found them before. I'm not breaking new ground here. Uh, but what I try to do after sort of like surveying what, how, what, what, what is there today is try to look at the emergence of this specific discourse of traditional justice, this sort of self-conscious uh, discussion about these issues, not, not necessarily the practices, because if we talk about the practices, you can go back to ancient Athens, as other also have done. But I, I've concentrated on when people started thinking about these issues as something that was separate, something that deserved to have a name, something that could be studied in, 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 in this sort of systematic way. So uh, I look at what is the birth of the discourse of traditional justice, and this takes me back to this sort of a dominant narrative, and these are sort of the landmark moments of the birth of transitional justice. And I concentrate first in the case of Argentina um, in, in the transition between 1983 and 1989, Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the development of international criminal justice in the 90s, and then the South African transition to see what they contributed to the the discourse of transitional justice. As many of you will know, the, the case of Argentina became paradigmatic for transitional justice uh, quite early on because following massive human rights violations by a military regime, the democratic uh, regime that was inaugurated in 1983 tried to put, uh, to did put to trial the leadership of the military uh, and some, uh, also some non-state um, armed groups. Uh, but then when the trials started to sort of mushroom and more uh, military of lower rank felt they might be prosecuted, this generated military unrest and this led to several laws that eventually precluded any sort of criminal accountability. And this is what sort of like the genesis of the famous peace versus justice debate. However, at this stage, there was not yet a separate, autonomous, self-conscious discourse of traditional justice. I do a discourse analysis of, 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 of the traction that uh, this experience generated, and there were people talking to cross-purposes, lawyers here, comparative uh, social science, scientists there, but there wasn't any sort of common ground. However, this practice already showed some of the characteristics I mentioned before, 
the, the legalistic um, responses were emphasized. The, 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 the this process was clearly had like a sort of goal in in mind, and the regime that was carrying out these these measures was also decided, decidedly liberal. We move to Eastern Europe, uh, and then we begin to see a more sort of like coordinated or systematic dialogue over these things. There were like a lot of conferences that took place, which had the, the express aim of sort of transferring knowledge and lessons from the case of Argentina and other Latin American countries to help the Eastern European countries that had to deal with the the human rights violations that were committed during the communist regimes. Um, <coughs> however, uh, interestingly enough, the, the, the former communist regimes didn't follow any of the lessons or didn't ad adopt any of the, or did not know the lessons, but they, they definitely didn't adopt any of the uh, mechanisms that were used in the Latin American um, in the Latin American experience, and even I had uh, interviews with people who were involved in those conferences and said that there wasn't much interest in, 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 in actually following the advice that was offered. But again, the discourse that followed the, the Eastern, this, this exercise had many of the characteristics I mentioned before. There it was comparative, as I said, transferring knowledge from one region to another. It was again legalistic, tele teleological in the sense that the, the, the whole, this, all this conference, all these like, books that were written had the purpose of helping these um, societies to overcome their past. Again, the, the regimes in one way or another were democratic, they were capitalist, and all these measures were state-centric. The, the third moment is the creation or, or the growth of internal criminal justice that was um, spearheaded by the creation of the ICTY in 1993. This was something that was not expected at all. Even people who have been advocating for international criminal justice for a long time didn't expect this will happen within their lifetimes. Uh, but it did. And the effect it had within this like nascent discourse of criminal justice was opening it to an international dimension. Until then, the cases of all the Latin American countries uh, the cases of the former US communist regimes, all the measures were taken at the national level. Uh, there was no discussion of having any international body or having even any, any international advice. It was just, well, these, these are questions that should be decided at the national level. Um, and again, international law began, began to play a bigger role in this discussion because until then it was mostly uh, domestic law, for instance, in the Argentine cases in the 1980s, it was purely domestic law that, that of which the junta leaders were convicted. And again, this discourse reflected many of the current characteristics. It was clearly legalistic, very state-centric, although, because again, even though we have international institutions, the international institutions are either created by a treaty, which is signed and negotiated by, by states, or by the Security Council and who uh, integrated the Security Council but state, so it's still state-centric. And, and here it, became, it, it, it began to be multi-level in the sense that we had international and national law and institutions at play. The final moment was uh, the South African transition. 
because uh, the, the, the TRC had this man, a very robust mandate, a semi-judicial mandate in which the, it could uh, issue amnesties for um, the full disclosure of what had transpired of, of poli for political crimes. And the fact that here there was a, an a traditional justice institution which wasn't a criminal trial, and it wasn't like, in pre as was the case of previous truth commissions, considered as like suboptimal or, or like a, a compromise when trials were not possible. This helped to a more traditional justice from purely criminal options, and, and it became much more like self-sustainable and, and, and a sort of thing of itself. And also it opened to many other disciplines and in, in this sense it became much more uh, multidisciplinary than it had been until then. Again, the South African TRC was also legalistic in the sense of only lawyers and judges could take part of the amnesty process. It was also a liberal institution uh, in the sense that the, 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 the ANC government that followed the transition was capitalist, was democratic, and again, as I said before, it was multidisciplinary. So, from all these four moments, we can see that how this um, discourse slowly and gradually developed, but it was marked by these clear episodes that had this sort of um, baggage, this historical baggage of these characteristics that remain to this day. So. In the second part of, 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 of my thesis, what I do is I, I look into what happened before transnational emerged as a self-sustained discourse. I call this the prehistory of transitional justice. So, uh, as I said, before the case of Ar Argentina, and even after the case of Argentina, there was no discuss systematic discussion uh, of transitional justice. But yet, when people decided to write a history of transitional justice, they didn't start here, they went far back, they went back to Nuremberg, and further back, uh, as I mentioned before in the case of ancient Greece, but more like as an anecdote rather than as a sort of systematic process. That clearly is meant to begin at Nuremberg. So I look back at this sort of prehistory and try to find, uh, first of all, uh, what was in sort of interrogating the, this sort of dominant narrative of the prehistory and to see whether it reflects its characteristics and question if this was the case that there were no other transitional or, or other possible transitional justice episodes or practices that have been taken into account. So the first point of call is Nuremberg. This is considered the origin of transitional justice. So what is Nuremberg? And this is something very slippery because when you read the, what people have written about uh, Nuremberg as the origin of transitional justice, there's quite a lot of ambiguity. Some people talk about Nuremberg in general, but then they only refer to the International Military Tribunal that, uh, that was composed of members of uh, France, the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and the United States. Uh, but other people also talk about Nuremberg and include the trials of the Nuremberg Military Tribunal, which was a solely American uh, endeavor. Other includes other trials by other uh, occupying powers. Also trials by some liberated countries and even uh, 
uh, episode uh, trial took place many years before. So Nuremberg, in a way, is, is a little bit of like a sort of shorthand for the post-war, uh, post-World War II transitional justice. But I, I also find that Nuremberg plays a, a precise role in, in transitional justice discourse. First, it's, it's served like a mythological role in the sense of, uh, I'd say we're talking that this sort of self-conscious discourse only emerged in the late 80s, early 90s. So looking back at the sort of uh, 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 way back to 1945, which was also a period of like hope <coughs> when the United Nations were created, where there was like a hope that war would end, uh, serves to give sort of more, uh, to root social justice in history and make it seem more relevant, even though it was very new, it was like trying to find this like myth, myth of creation uh, in the sense of uh, Rome being founded by Aeneas fleeing Troy or, or this sort of, uh, sort of different mythological origins. And secondly, Nuremberg plays an exemplary role in transitional <coughs> justice practice and discourse in the way of, is, is, is presented as this sort of like landmark moment where there was political will and resources to carry out widespread prosecution. So, it, and also an example of using international law <coughs> in transitional justice. And in that sense, it's, it's, it's sort of like presented as this sort of like beacon. Lastly, it plays this, what I call this ancestral role in the sense of, because Nuremberg, as, as particularly the, the IMT, was an international tribunal that applied international law, it was a way of incorporating, by, by, by claiming that Nuremberg is the origin of transitional justice, this helped to legitimize the incorporation of international criminal justice within this framework of transitional justice, as I said, until the ICTY was created, was considered purely national. So uh, in, that, in that way, New, the, having Nuremberg as the origin of traditional justice helps to reinforce this, this sort of kinship between international criminal law and traditional justice. And, but it's not all of Nuremberg or it's not all of the post-war that is emphasized in traditional justice. And it, actually, those aspects of post-war justice that reflect the characteristics I mentioned before are emphasized and those that don't are downplayed. So in that sense, the IMT, which was, a, was an international tribunal and which tried the most senior, um, the most senior Nazi leaders, is, 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 is presented as the most important uh, event. Uh, secondly, the, the development of international criminal law is also emphasized. And then some national trials, like the trial of uh, Eichmann or the trials of the uh, Nuremberg Military Tribunal, uh, by the American, by American judges is also emphasized. However, other, other elements of post-war justice are marginalized from the history of transitional justice. One of them is the contribution of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union supported trying the Nazis since 1943 at least, and their lawyers were key in in, in, in sort of drafting the law or, or trying to make the argument of how particularly crime of aggression could be criminalized under international law, and they're also instrumental in the negotiation of the London Agreement. Also in practice, they tried more people in the occupation zone and, and carried out even more um, 
uh, other transitional justice measures such as reparations and restitutions and uh, lustration. However, their contribution is overlooked uh, because clearly the trials they, they carried out were not as legalistic as the other ones because the regime wasn't liberal and the transitional justice they, they sort of put in practice wasn't apolitical, it was actually manifestedly political and, 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 and meant to serve political goals. So that's the first sort of post-war element that's marginalized. The second one is the economic dimension of the post-war transitional justice. And the German economy was playing for the war, uh, and this wasn't just the Soviet Union, but the, the US mainly uh, criticized the highly concentrated uh, with many monopolies and cartels <coughs> of, the, of the Nazi economy as, as, as guilty for the war. So there was a widespread program to reform the German economy, to break down these mass massive uh, cartels and monopolies and, and, to, um, and to ensure that uh, they couldn't be as big as they had been before the war. Secondly, uh, the economists and industrialists that were linked or had or were responsible for some of the atrocities were prosecuted. At the IMT, um, the um, two ministers of economics were prosecuted. Uh, one was convicted, that was acquitted, and then one industrialist was meant to be tried, but then he was unfit to stand trial because due to his age. But then. And the Americans in the Nuremberg military tribunals, which were, which tried, which had held 12 other um, trials afterwards, tried and had three trials devoted to industrialists. However, this economic dimension of um, the post-war justice has been largely overlooked in traditional justice discourse. Uh, this has to do, I, I believe, in that uh, these trials and, and this economic dimension was first a partial indictment of capitalism in the sense of capitalism or at least the version of capitalism that was uh, in place in Nazi Germany was blamed for the war and in a way it appeared as an indictment of capitalism as such to, to, to try to ascribe blame to that and also would be an example of um, trying to bring the blame on industrialists and other um, entrepreneurs for what happened uh, for, for human rights violations and secondly it wasn't the focus wasn't on civil and political rights as I mentioned before but rather on, on, on sort of economic violations then the third element of post-war justice hasn't been taken into account is that following liberation there were widespread lynchings and extrajudicial punishment of people 8,000 people alone were executed in France, but also there were similar punishments in Italy, in, in, in the Netherlands, in, in many other countries. Uh, yet, this, and, and also beyond lynchings, there were also the um, resistance or other, um, other armed groups carried out their own drumhead trials, and, and even the states, even the, the sort of liberated France um, government also carried out trials that were summary, uh, didn't follow sort of legalistic rules. And yet this massive wave of popular justice hasn't been considered instance of transitional justice. 
very few authors mention them, but when they do, they just mention them as like sort of a, a side note, but not they don't question why this took place or why is this not considered a version, even a very bad version of transitional justice. And this has to do that these instances challenge legalism very clearly and also state-centrism because mostly were people taking justice in their own hands. So this that's the um, the last element of of post-war justice has been marginalized by the dominant narrative. I now move to the last part, which is which actually was the one that fascinated me the most when I started was doing my research. Is was or at least when I started to look critically at the dominant narrative and this, well, how can it be that for 40 years nothing happened? That between Nuremberg and at the very earliest, the Argentine transition in 1983, nothing happened in, in the sense of transitional justice. So the dominant narrative is that, well, with the ideological stalemate between the Soviet Union and the US, there was no possibility of developing international law in the direction of uh, having more international criminal tribunals between 1946 and 1993, and that there was no development. That's sort of the, 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 the main thrust of the dominant narrative. However, during the same period, uh, human rights developed from like a very sort of nascent idea into a widespread movement with uh, a very solid legal armature of, of human rights law, uh, a very vigorous um, human rights movement, and, and, and of course the field of transitional justice relies very heavily on international human rights law and grew from the human rights movement and in that sense it's not possible to conceive transitional justice as it is today without human rights law and, and human rights as a movement. So that's something that clearly happened during the Cold War that was significant. But there were also other things that were even more uh, marginalized from, from, from the dominant narrative. One of them is, during the Cold War, there were many proxy wars um, in which other states were proxies for the Soviet Union and the United States. And some of them, they, like, as in Afghanistan and in Vietnam, the superpowers actually fought themselves. However, these conflicts have not been uh, examined in death by traditional justice discourse. For instance, I, I, I focus on um, the Russell Tribunal, which was an, an official tribunal that was created by intellectuals in 1968 as a response to the Vietnam War. And this was like a, a, an official tribunal in which intellectuals would hear witnesses, will, will review evidence, and at the end they would pass judgment on uh, alleged uh, US crimes during the Vietnam War. At the end of, of the hearings, they, they decided that um, the United States was guilty of uh, uh, war crimes and even of the crime of genocide against the Vietnamese people. Uh, however, this is not considered largely a criminal justice or an important criminal justice um, landmark during the Cold War because this, this institution challenged legalism very clearly. This was just uh, they, they, they made very liberal, liberal use of uh, legal <coughs> forms. For instance, uh, they included cultural genocide within the definition of genocide, although it is excluded from the, from the definition of the Genocide Convention. 
it even more clearly defines uh, states and prisons by being sort of private citizens setting up a tribunal, and they were no they, they were they were not liberal in the sense that they uh, said that capitalism and the U.S. expansionism was to blame for for the war. The second process that took place during uh, the Cold War period, which has been omitted from traditional justice history, is decolonization. Uh, between 1946 and 1989, uh, dozens of countries that were previously colonized became, in the, became independent. Um, they haven't been this hasn't, hasn't largely been studied by traditional justice discourse, uh, because most, mostly these countries rely on economic and social reform as a way to redress the, the violence of, of the colonial past. Uh, this was partly due to ideological reasons, but also the impossibility of effectively prosecuting the former uh, colonial rulers for their role in, for their role in the atrocities. One of the main elements uh, or policies that were used to sort of redress the past. The past was um, implementing uh, land reform programs. Uh, however, these programs were adopted with the emphasis on civil and political rights uh, because they, were, they, 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 they started from the premise that the most important um, or, or, and the most nefarious legacy of colonialism was socioeconomic and it was necessary to change the economic structure of the state in order to, to, to redress the past. So this is the second process. And the last one is uh, non-liberal transition. Uh, when, when, when you read about the history of transitional justice, everybody talks about transitions to liberalism. However, again, during the Cold War regime, there were many non-liberal transitions. From each uh, Greece or Spain, you had a Cuba or a Nicaragua. However, this, this hasn't been taken seriously into consideration in the history of the discourse. In particular, many of the non-liberal regimes that this regime that had transitioned from uh, a, a violent or authoritarian past to uh, a new regime that was not liberal, uh, they implemented different measures. Many of them, as in the case of decolonization and, and there are strong links between these two processes because many of the non-liberal transitions were carried out by um, former, formerly colonized um, states. Uh, so many of them focus on the socioeconomic aspects and have again land reform, economic reform uh, measures. But also a, a very interesting element was that many of these non-liberal regimes also established popular tribunals which were a way of uh, we were conceived as a way of incorporating the masses into the administration of justice. These took two forms. One of them, one form were the, called the so-called revolutionary tribunals that were uh, created shortly after the transition and which normally operated as sort of military courts that, that dealt summarily with war crimes and uh, another, another violations of, of the previous regime. These, these trials didn't respect uh, due process in a, of any way, um, but yet they made use of, of international law in their own way. 
And also the second, the, second, uh, the second type of popular tribunal were created to deal with a specific set of offenses which had to do with corruption or minor offenses and this had clearly a pedagogical purpose and they were a way of incorporating lay people <coughs> into the administration of justice to make the justice less esoteric, less complicated and to bring it to the people. This had to do with like an ideological belief uh, in the sense that uh, law was perceived as this like bourgeois preserve or in the case of decolonized countries as this like colonial legacy that had to be reformed. And again, these this popular tribunals are not considered part of traditional justice history, mainly because they challenged liberalism, because obviously they were implemented by non-liberal regimes, but they also challenged legalism in the sense that they were expressly created to avoid legal formality and to, to administer justice that was much more approachable and, and less, less rigorous. So these three sort of processes that took place with the Cold War uh, have been largely overlooked and made, 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 made this made me realize that there's this sort of wealth of, of experiences that could be uh, looked into during the, the, this lost 40 years of transitional justice that, that, that could lead to quite interesting research, I think. So, con to conclude, the circumstances of the emergence of, trans of the discourse of transitional justice in the 90s, as I said before, as the argument, framed which responses were considered valid. Those would chime well with the characteristics that were a result of that emergence are recognized as practice of transitional justice, those, those that don't, or even more those that challenge those same characteristics, are marginalized or, or, or omitted from this history. And lastly, as I, as I just said, I think it would be quite interesting to look into these different practices and, and approaches in the past to, to see what, what, what lessons could, could be had for transitional justice today. Of course, a massive caveat is I'm not saying that all these forbidden practices were good or that they should be implemented. Clearly, many of them uh, were a source of very serious human rights abuses themselves, as I said. As I just mentioned, the revolutionary tribunals or uh, Soviet purges or, 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 or many other of these processes. But yet, uh, unless we are ready to admit that transitional justice is a normative field which only recognizes those practices that, that sort of respect these rules, uh, I think that they still need to be considered as part of the universe because it, unless we, 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 we make that conscious sort of normative statement, then they shouldn't be overlooked because it, it, there's no reason to, to do so. And, and, and it could be, uh, and some lessons could be derived from them. So I, I will conclude with this and I would very much like to hear any questions from you or any comments. Thank you very much. Thank you.